Our reading today is from John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and give to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to it and what was put into it. Uh, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Have you ever been in a social situation that should have been pleasant, but turned out to be unexpectedly tense. Someone said an inappropriate remark, and the table got quiet. Someone brought up a, a, a secret that they thought everybody knew, and suddenly everybody got quiet. Anybody else, any ever been in a situation kind of like that? You can imagine it. You've been in a situation where it's like, oh, no, what's going to happen next? That's what's going on in this story. You may not have caught it the first time you heard it, as Chris read it for you, because it's so familiar. But this is a situation which should have been a beautiful party together that turned into a very tense moment. We're going to take a look at it this morning. Now, look at this table of this dinner party. At one side of the table is Lazarus. Now, think about this. Just a few weeks ago, Lazarus was dead. He had died. We studied it last week in the 11th chapter of John. He had passed away, a dear friend to Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus had shown up four days after he'd been buried, uh, after he was in the grave, after he died four days later, and he raised him from the dead. And now you're at this dinner party, and there's Lazarus. What would you like to ask Lazarus at that party? What would you want to know? Can you imagine the conversation that you could have? Uh, Lazarus, what was it like? What was it like to be dead? Do you remember anything? Were you with God? What was it like to hear Jesus' voice? Did you hear it? What did you think when you were walking out of that tomb? And what's it like to be alive again? All the questions that could have been happening. What a great dinner party. What a fascinating conversation that should have been or could have been. But it wasn't just Lazarus at the table. Next to him or just around from him, there is Jesus himself. Jesus, the guy who by his own voice said, Lazarus, come out. And there he was. The dead brother, the dead friend is walking out alive. Wouldn't it have been uh, a great to talk to Jesus and ask him about that? Can, that should have been a fun time. But as it turned out, it wasn't. There was a lot of tension in the air. Think about some of the things that made that situation tense. There was, first of all, the ominous threat of Jesus' arrest. I debated about having Chris read for you the verses preceding this text. But you would think everybody would be excited about a man raising a guy from the dead. But in truth, 
it was the resurrection, the raising the dead of, of Lazarus that really precipitated the fast track of events towards Jesus' death. What had happened was that Jesus had become so powerful, and the religious leaders had become so concerned for them, they were very concerned that Rome would come in and bring their armies in and, 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 and shut them down if any kind of revolt happened. That's why in the preceding verses, if you have your Bible, you see they're saying, we got to do something. It was not only were they concerned about the teaching of Jesus and the people following, but they were concerned about Rome coming in. And it was a very real possibility. In fact, 40 years after this, that's exactly what happened. A Jewish revolt started in about 66 AD. Rome came in. They destroyed it. They destroyed the temple. And there's still never been a temple for Jerusalem since 70 AD for the Jewish people. That was when, the, and it happened again in the 120 AD when they had another revolt, Simon Bar Kokhba. So this concern was a very real concern. So this was a very uh, a tense moment. In the verses preceding this story, John tells us this. Here's what it says. Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that is Jesus, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. So they had put the word out. Now Bethany, where Jesus was at this, for this party, was two miles from Jerusalem. Two miles. That's even a short distance in our time. But on that day, that's like next door, you know? Jesus was having a difficult time showing up at Bethany unannounced. That's why he hadn't come there earlier when Lazarus had been sick, in part, because it was dangerous. It was too close to the religious elite, the powerful people. And now he's back there for a dinner party. It's on probably uh, Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday, probably Sunday or Monday before Jesus' crucifixion. This is the beginning, virtually, of Holy Week, all right? All right, so you'd think they would have been delighted, but they weren't. They were upset and said, um, um, so the atmosphere was very tense. Now, it wasn't just the outside environment that was tense that made it a tense meeting, but it was also the inside environment as well. Wonder, we wonder, first of all, whether maybe there was tension between Mary and Martha. Do you see what it said? It said, Mary, uh, Martha served, they're having a dinner party, Martha served, and Lazarus was reclining at the table, and Mary took a pound of an ointment made of pure Nard and anointed Jesus. We know another story about Mary and Martha. We know that Martha was one who's always working, always doing the work. And one time she said to Jesus, Jesus, would you put Martha to work? So there was probably a little bit of sisterly tension going on already. You know, Martha's doing all the work, setting up the dinner, and Mary's stealing the show by having this unseemly display of affection to Jesus. It was a tense moment. Okay? We don't know for sure. What we do know is that Mary upstaged Martha by performing a most surprising and even, we would say, risque act in the presence of all those men around the table. At some point before or during or after the meal, she entered the room with an expensive container of perfume. And without regard for propriety, she broke the jar, let down her hair, and quietly began to anoint Jesus' feet with the perfume and to wipe them with her hair. This was an awkward moment for everyone. Imagine, you're not expecting it. And uh, Roxy comes right up here to me, and she says, uh, uh, Steve, <laughs> yeah, pardon me, everybody. <laughs> uh, Steve, would you take off your shoes? I want to wash your feet. I'll use my, we would all, I mean, you imagine, some of you are getting nervous even thinking about that scene. That's exactly what was going on. In that day, a proper woman would never let her hair down in the presence of men, except her husband and her family. 
when she let her hair down, that was a ah, that was a little unseemly. That was a little bit uh, precarious. It wasn't quite the normal way of thing. Plus, it was a very expensive perfume that she was using. Why was it being wasted in this way? You know, why was she wasting it? It's 300 denarii. Well, apparently, denarii was like a day's wages, a day's wages for common laborers. 300 of those is about a year's worth of value. So take minimum wage, multiply it times a year, and you know that what she poured out on Jesus that day was that valuable. It was that valuable to her. So, and if she were going to anoint him, what's the right place to anoint somebody? It's on their head. And she's anointing him on his feet because normally the anointing is done by a superior, like a, pre, a prophet, who's anointing the next king. He's above. She was way too humble for that. She would not stand above Jesus. She went down to his feet in front of everybody and anointed him there. This was a very awkward situation. What had, should have been a very beautiful party and, and, and had become tense because of the outward circumstances now was awkward because of what was going on inside. Everybody was quiet, probably. Everybody was wondering what's going to happen next. No one knew what to say except Judas, who probably said what everybody else was thinking. What's this? <laughs> Why is this waste? Master, isn't this a bit wasteful? Couldn't this perfume have been used, put to better use? After all, this is, this is a 12-ounce bottle, 11 and a half ounces, 12-ounce bottle worth all this money. Could have been used. In the, Jesus gave his typically unexpected response. He says, he says uh, um, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you don't always have me. Jesus has put down... And Judas, excuse me, Judas is put down, not Jesus. Judas is put down, and he is not very happy about it. He doesn't like being shown up by Jesus in this way. He's the guy that had been asked to take care of the money for the people, for the group. He had been asked to be the guy to steward the financial resources for the group. It was his job to pay attention to resources. And Jesus is one-upping him, and he's saying, no, that's all right. That's all right, Judas. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, it seems to have been this event, this put down by Jesus, which precipitated Judas going to the religious authorities and saying, if you want to know where Jesus is, I'll turn him in for you. This event, this is how significant this event, uh, this event was, you know. And our story closes on an even more ominous note. Chris read it for you. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the guy who'd been dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, de Lazarus to death as well. Now Lazarus' life is in danger. They didn't want any evidence of Jesus going on, uh, causing a stir. So once again, John weaves the shadow of death into this tale about the life of Jesus. The shadow of death is all around this. Okay? Um, until now, if you were with us last week, you know that he has organized this story around various signs of life that show that Jesus is uh, bringing resurrection to the world. He turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed a lame man by the pool. He fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. He walked on water. He heals a man born blind. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs of new creation. Next week, we'll focus our attention. Listen up, everybody. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, next week, we'll begin to focus our attention on Jesus' glory as he begins to move towards his death. You know, um, and Jesus is going to be moving quickly towards the time of his death. So let's take a look at this story now and take a look at four main characters quickly, and we'll begin to think about some things about these persons. Let's take a look, first of all, at Lazarus. What can we learn from Lazarus? The thing I want you to see about Lazarus, and you jot this down in your notes if you like, is that Lazarus is a living witness. Or you could say he's a living witness to Jesus. Think about this. Lazarus is a guy who by his very life gives evidence to the power of Jesus. Um, he, his, his, there are two things to see about Lazarus, and I'll go quickly through these things. Number one, his life is a testimony to the power of Jesus. And secondly, his life is a threat to the, to the status quo. Lazarus's life is a testimony to the power of Jesus, and he is a threat to the status quo. One of the things we tend to say about our church is that we want to become living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. The supreme example of that in Scripture is this guy Lazarus. He was a living witness. He had been dead, and his life brought evidence to the power of Jesus. And that was a, a, a testimony to how great God was, but it was also a threat to those who didn't believe in Jesus. You know, that's what God wants for you and I to be, living witnesses to Jesus' life, changing power. And yes, it should become a testimony to the power of Jesus and a threat, perhaps, to the status quo. The question is, you know, what does a living witness to Jesus' power do in his work life? What does he do as a neighbor to his friends? How can I live in such a way that I become a living witness to the life-producing power of Jesus? How do I run my business like Jesus would run it? How do I live like someone who's been made new by Christ? What kind of language does a person use who's been made new by, new by Jesus? What kind of TV shows does a person watch who's been made new by Jesus? What kind of entertainment does a person go to who's been made new by Jesus? How does a guy made new by Jesus treat his wife? How does a girl made new by Jesus treat her husband? child to the parents, living witnesses. Lazarus had become a living witness to the power of God. And so the question to ask ourselves before we move to the next person in this story is this, how can I become a living witness to the life-changing power of Jesus? Some of us have to admit, probably all of us, if we're really honest, will admit that there are some deathly things that happen in our lives too. There are deathly ways we spend our money. There are deathly ways we spend our time. There are deathly ways we treat people around us, especially people different than us or not as holy as us, right? These are not the life-giving things of Jesus. We're called to become living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. Something had happened to Lazarus. He had been dead in a grave. And now he's alive. His life was a testimony to the reality of Jesus. You and I are called to be that as well. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We could say old things are in the grave. Now I'm living life new. Or in Romans 6, we can see this same idea. Um, 
that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus should live a new life. Some of us who have come to know Jesus have been living like we're in the tombs a little bit too much. Let's become living witnesses to the life-changing power of Jesus. It will become a testimony to others. Yes, it will become a threat to the status quo. There will be people who won't like it when you forgive where others are resentful, when you love where others hate, when you give where others take, when you uh, serve where others look to be served. Yes, Lazarus is a living witness. We can learn from him around the table. Let's move our way around, and let's take a look at this person, Mary. What do we learn from Mary as the second person in the story we want to look at? Mary gives a lavish love. Mary gives a lavish love. It's a crazy story. She takes this valuable perfume. And imagine, it was her brother who was dead. It was her brother whom she had buried. And now her brother is sitting there at the table. She never thought that would happen. She's overcome with gratitude. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She wants to find the best possible way she can show her gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus. She doesn't care if it's not right to take her hair down. She wants to express her love. She doesn't care what this ointment is worth. She wants to lavishly present it before Jesus. She gives a lavish love. Three things to note about her love quickly. Number one, her love was humble. Number two, her love was unashamed. Number three, her love was extravagant. It was humble. As I already demonstrated, she comes, she performs the act of a servant. She comes, she kneels down in front of all these guys and begins to wash his feet. There's no pretension in this. She's not gaining brownie points for this from anybody. She's humbly coming to Jesus. And when you and I want to come to Jesus, we come to him humbly, not looking for something from him, but rather to give ourselves to him to say, thank you, Jesus. Her love was also unashamed. She knew the risks that she was taking she knew that others would tell stories about it. She knew that she was, uh, um, you know, taking a, uh, you know, uh, the possibility of, of being thought to be different than she was. I mean, she's an unmarried woman. He's an unmarried man. What's going on? You know, she was unashamed. She was not afraid. How many times have you and I been afraid? I know how it happens. I've been in church services where I'm sitting back at the back, and for better or worse, God didn't give me a quiet voice. There's only one way I know how to sing. There's only, I can't, you know, it just doesn't come out. And I've been at the back somewhere, and no one else is singing much, and I'm a little kind of, I don't want to stick out. God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy. You ever done that? Yes, you have. Some of you remember doing that not very long ago. <laughs> Unashamed. God of wonders. I don't care if people think I'm showing off. If I am, show me. God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy. Lord of heaven and earth, look at that. Thank you, God. See, unashamed. Some of you are afraid to tell people what you do on a Sunday morning. Now you can say you're going to the saloon and they won't know the difference. I'm going to the saloon. We're going to the Buffalo Chip tomorrow. A little unashamed. 
are a little ashamed. No, I don't mean be brash. Remember I said be humble. But say, hey, I'm coming to worship God. I have become a follower of Jesus. I don't really mind if you think I'm crazy. And then it was extravagant. It was extravagant. A lot of us love Jesus not enough to be extravagant. You know, you had Valentine's this past week, or you have, you know, Christmas last month or so. You wanted to do something special for those whom you love. You want to do it extravagantly, you know. Um, we should give extravagantly to Jesus. We should show our love in extravagant kinds of ways, with the way we use our resources, with the way we use our time. Her love was humble. It was unashamed. It was extravagant. So the question that we can ask ourselves is, how can I become a lavish lover of Jesus? How can I become a lavish lover of Jesus? I don't know if you know this, but we're in the season called Lent. We're in the 40 days. In fact, this is the first Sunday of Lent. This is the time historically when believers of all, all over the world have taken time to reflect and deeply meditate on the love that Jesus has for us. It's, I think, providential for us that as we're studying our way through the Gospel of John, we're now moving into the last week of Jesus' life. I'm hoping we can get to the resurrection by Easter Sunday. <laughs> But Easter's on March 31st this week, and I tend to go a little more slowly than that. I'll do the best that I can, but don't worry. We'll have an Easter, um, uh, Easter service on Sunday. Uh, but we're going to be spending that last 24 hours with Jesus. You know, the other, just yesterday, <coughs> just yesterday, is there water or something I'm going to bring? Um, just yesterday I saw on some TV station, uh, uh, Marvin Gaye's last 24. Tupac Shakur's last 24. You know, a series. Have you even seen this show or heard of these shows? You see them pass through. And I thought, the last 24 hours of Marvin Gaye, who of course was shot by his father. Oh, that's fine. Tupac Shakur, who was shot by who knows when, who knows whom. The last 20, final 24 of David Koresh. Three shows in a row. I didn't really watch them. Um, and, uh, and I thought about, what about Jesus' last 24? That's what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple of months. How can we show our love for him? How can we express our lavish love for Jesus? Some of you should make a special Bible reading project during the course of this month to reflect on Jesus. Okay, how can I become a lavish lover of Jesus? Number three, Judas. Judas. Judas is a lying hypocrite. Judas is a lying hypocrite. We see three things about Judas in this text. Number one, he was offended by Mary's impropriety. This is not said explicitly, but I think it's no doubt true. Everyone was probably. Remember, Jesus only said, Judas only said what probably everyone was thinking. He was offended by her impropriety. He was certainly offended by Mary's wastefulness, but also he was dishonest with himself and with others. You know, he looks at this waste of funds. And he says, this is such a waste. This money could have been used for better purposes. And I don't have the time to actually talk about this, but, uh, you know, um, Judas was dishonest with himself. He thought he cared about the poor. What he really cared about was himself. The Bible says that he actually was stealing from the money bag. 
you know, they had been giving and they always had money for the poor. And the scriptures are clear that we have a responsibility to the poor. Don't let anybody tell you any different. It's all the way through the scripture. We still have a responsibility to the poor. That's a subject for another message. But Judas had been dishonest with himself. He was criticizing Mary and criticizing Jesus for not having said something, but he was dishonest with himself. And sometimes we are like that. In fact, most of us can be, think of times when we become a little offended at Jesus, offended at something about Christianity, when the real problem is in our own hearts. Why do Christians act that way? Why does God expect this out of me? Why is God so demanding? Why did God allow this thing to happen? Why did God allow that cruise ship on my honeymoon to stop for three days? I hate God because what he did. You know, we get all these things. We want to, and the truth is, usually our offense with God is because there's a sense of, I don't want to give God control of my life. That's what was going on with Judas. He was dishonest. You know, to become, this is a tough thing to see. To become like Lazarus and Mary, I must first admit I am Judas. Oh, boy. I am a guy who's offended God, who's turned my back on God. I am a guy, a gal who's in need of his grace. I am a guy who's probably more like Judas than I really want to admit. Let's look finally then, Jesus. Jesus is a loving sacrifice. Jesus is a loving sacrifice. We see that he did three things. He received Mary's loving offering. He knew what she was doing. In fact, he interpreted it in a way she didn't even know, I'm sure. She said, he said, you know, she's anointing me for my burial. And we know that within a week, Jesus was dead. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that her action was greater than she knew. And I think that's beautiful. You and I bring offerings to Jesus of one sort or another. We're thinking about one thing, but Jesus is accomplishing something so much greater. So much greater. Our little expression of love turns out to be something greater. Because it's true that on Friday, after that Sunday or Monday, Jesus was crucified. And they hadn't had time to anoint him for his burial because of the Sabbath. They put him in the tomb, unanointed, untaken care of exactly as they wanted to. That's why they were coming back on Sunday morning. They wanted to finish the job. They discovered that he wasn't there. He was raised from the dead. But so Mary's act of love was multiplied by Jesus' acceptance of that love. He also gave Lazarus new life, the second thing. He gave to Lazarus new life. And then the final thing about Jesus, Jesus died for Judas. Yes, he died for the one who betrayed him. And the gospel story tells us that Judas wasn't the only betrayer, that every human being needs the sacrificial death of Jesus. And the loving story of Jesus is that Jesus was glad to offer his life as a sacrifice. And so we want to close our time by asking ourselves that question. Have I received the new, forgiven, love-filled life Jesus died to offer me? If you don't think that there's a Judas in your heart, you haven't looked carefully enough at your heart. If you've not received Jesus' forgiving love, please do that. Please do that. 
when that happens, you will be given the new life like Lazarus was given. And when that happens, your acts of love and worship will be magnified like Mary's were. Yes, it was something of an awkward dinner party. But when Jesus spoke about it in the Gospel of, I think, uh, Mark and in Matthew about this same story, Jesus said, wherever this, the Gospel goes, people will speak about this woman and what she did for me today. So here is Mary, and here is the Gospel. Jesus died for Judas. That means he died for you and for me. Receive his life, live his life, offer lavish worship, and see what great things God does through it. Let's have prayer. Father, we've taken a moment to look at this great story in the Scriptures, and we pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts, that Mary's act of lavish love would communicate to us how worthy you are of our love, that Lazarus's new life would communicate to us how eagerly you wish to give to us a new life, how Jesus' death for Judas reminds us that though we are the ones who are guilty, you're the one who took our guilt so we could have your life. We thank you for that. I pray that there will be those among us today who would receive and embrace that no matter what we might have in the back of our closet that, fears, that, that uh, we fear. And we just offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.